If you listened closely, you could hear how wet Vermont got last week when much of the state was inundated with catastrophic flooding. Hey, that's... There goes the tree. Chloe, back up. Get back here. Online, you'll find video after video of water rushing through neighborhoods, destroying the asphalt, bobbing around cars and trucks. This is a street in Ludlow, Vermont. The road looks like a river, and it sounds like the ocean. This is a very simple way of saying it, but there's too much water. Anna Weber is a policy analyst at the Natural Resources Defense Council. It's overflowing riverbanks, overflowing the streams and the creeks. And no matter how many times I see pictures like that, it affects me the same way every time. How? It's unimaginable, right? Anna doesn't call the flooding that happened in Vermont a natural disaster. She actually hates that description. A hurricane or a flood on its own is not a disaster. That's what we would call a natural hazard. A disaster happens when there are people in harm's way of that hazard and when they're vulnerable to its effects. And that's a decision that we make as people. We're the ones who decide who lives in vulnerable areas, who has the resources to cope with the effects of extreme weather and things like that. Anna says we make those decisions based on expectations, stories we tell ourselves about the risk all around us. We call big storms thousand-year weather events or hundred-year floods. But that doesn't take into account the way climate change is speeding up our timelines. Yes, exactly. Because what information are you using to calculate how frequently you expect a flood to happen? If you're only using information from the past and you're saying this is a historical one in 1,000-year chance flood, well, what if those floods are happening more frequently now? Just because we call something, say, a 100-year flood, doesn't mean that if it happens one year, then you're good for the next 99 years. It's more like rolling the dice. If you, you have a six-sided die and you roll it and you get a six, the next time you roll it, you're going to have a one in six chance of getting a six again, even if you just got a six last time, right? It's, it's like we're rolling the dice more often. Yeah, we're rolling the dice more often or the dice are loaded. Today on the show, the way we think about flooding may be keeping us from truly understanding how vulnerable we are in a warming world. So why can't we see those risks in a new way? I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next? Stick around. This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. 
The main way people in the U.S. understand how flood-prone their homes are is by looking at the Federal Emergency Management Agency's flood maps. The whole idea of a 100-year or 1,000-year storm, it comes from those maps and how they calculate risk. So I asked Anna Weber to start out by explaining this very basic tool. So when water falls from the sky, it has to go somewhere, right? And that's what the flood maps are designed to tell us. So for example, in a certain situation with a certain storm, we might expect a river's level to rise a certain amount, right? Based on our understanding of the hydrology of the river and sort of how it flows and how fast the water is going, right? Once the river reaches a certain point, it's going to overtop its banks and spill out into the floodplain. And we often talk about floodplains like they're a dangerous place. But a floodplain is really just a natural feature of any river or stream. It's just where the water goes when it doesn't fit in the river anymore. The problem comes when when we build our communities in the floodplains, right? And we put ourselves at risk. Of course, it's really nice to be in the floodplain in a lot of places. That's where a lot of our communities are. We like to hang out in the floodplain as people because we like to be near bodies of water. It's pretty. Yeah, exactly. And so there's, you know, there's a a lot of us who live in the floodplain. And so flood maps are designed to tell us sort of what is the risk of putting a building in a floodplain, for example. How frequently would we expect that building to experience flooding? What should we do about it? So what the FEMA flood maps tell you is basically just a couple of really key pieces of information. And sort of the number one key piece of information that a FEMA flood map tells you is whether or not a location is within the 1% annual chance flood or the 100-year flood, because that's where there's certain requirements for how we're supposed to manage our floodplains and build our communities so that they're at less risk. Like once you're in this 1% area, there are rules. Exactly, right. What are FEMA's maps missing? My understanding is that they don't necessarily capture all the flooding risk that exists. Yeah, that's exactly right. One big problem is that they only use historical or past information. And so that doesn't work anymore under climate change, right? Because the maps are created under the assumption that the conditions of the past are going to be similar to the conditions in the future. And we already know that that's not the case. The other problem is that many of these maps are out of date. And so they're not even using the most recent past information, A lot of FEMA's flood maps are 10, 15, or even 20 or more years out of date at this point, despite a requirement that they're supposed to be updated. That's that's pretty out of date. Yeah, there's there's some really good, there was a good study from a few years ago that looked at the percentages of FEMA's flood maps that are drastically out of date. And it's, it's a large... I was actually looking at the dates of the flood maps in some of these key areas in Vermont that are seeing a lot of flooding right now. It looks like the flood maps in the Montpelier area were adopted in 2013. Okay, so that's like 10 years ago. 10 years ago, right? But keep in mind that the maps are supposed to be updated every five years. Huh. And then I was looking at other parts of this state Um, Plymouth, for example, their maps are from 2007. So 
that predates Hurricane Irene, right? That's a lot of information that could be used to update these maps that isn't being used right now. That's interesting because it's my understanding that it's ultimately in FEMA's best interest to have these maps be updated to let people know what places are risky. Because if you do that, people can make choices. They can either not move to a risky place or they can purchase flood insurance. And in theory, that means FEMA itself is less exposed because it has to do less disaster relief, like take on less of that itself, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So why wouldn't FEMA simply update its maps? It's hard to do, and it takes a lot of time and it takes a lot of money. The Association of State Floodplain Managers estimates that it's going to take, I think, like something like $3 billion minimum to fully map all the places in the United States that still need flood maps and to update the out-of-date maps. And um, in recent years, FEMA just hasn't had that kind of budget. They've also had a lot of other things to do with all of the disasters going on um, over the past few years. A lot of Areas within FEMA are just like stretched really thin. The agency doesn't have a lot of capacity to deal with these non-disaster components of their work. My understanding is that there's another problem too, that local communities have their own incentives, their own reasons for FEMA to not update these maps. Can you explain that a bit? Yeah. Like I was saying, one of the like the key purpose of these maps is to show you where you need to apply these floodplain management rules and where people need to buy flood insurance. And so if your goal is to develop some land as fast and as inexpensively as possible, you might look at those requirements as an impediment that's standing in your way, right? And so there are situations where updating a flood map might take your house, for example, and put it in a flood zone where it wasn't before. Obviously, your house hasn't moved, but the risk around you is changing. And maybe now you're required to hold flood insurance and you weren't before. And flood insurance can be very expensive. And so you might not be excited about that possibility. It seems so short-sighted, though. Like, I would think that local municipalities would want accurate flood maps so that they can plan for not just five years down the line, but 10, 20, 100 years down the line and make sure that they're not caught up in a very expensive disaster. Yeah, that's definitely part of it. But there's a lot of competing priorities and competing incentives in all of these decisions. Another thing that we have to keep in mind is that thinking about the long-term like this, like we're doing now because of climate change, is relatively new. In the past, we've been able to make decisions based on the way things have always been. And we've been relatively confident that that's the way things will always be. We know now that that's not the case, but most of the government systems and institutions that we rely on when we make these kinds of decisions haven't caught up to that fact. And so the deck is kind of stacked against us in a way if we're trying to make long-ranging, climate-smart decisions. It's really hard to do that. We'll be right back. (laughs) 
This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. The whole reason FEMA draws flood maps in the first place is because it provides flood insurance, right? And these maps determine who has to buy in? Yeah, that's basically right. The flood maps that we're talking about, the technical term for them is a FIRM, F-I-R-M, which stands for Flood Insurance Rate Map. So these maps are, they are part of the National Flood Insurance Program. They wouldn't exist without it. Can you explain why the National Flood Insurance Program was necessary in the first place and how it was supposed to work? Yeah. So basically, the private insurance industry decided that it didn't want to cover flood risk. It wasn't a good investment. Hold it. Why not? So if you think about insurance, you think about like car insurance, basically. For example, everyone who has a car pretty much needs to have car insurance. And so the risk is spread out across a really broad pool of people. But with flooding, the risk is really concentrated. There are some people who their home is probably never going to flood. And there's some people who their home is going to flood on a regular basis. And so it's not like car insurance where you're spreading out that financial risk across the entire population. Unless you require everyone in the country to have flood insurance, you are only insuring people who have a lot of risk. Hmm. And so that's not like a very attractive financial investment, you know, if you're an insurance company. Okay, so the government gets involved. So what happened basically, yes, is the the federal government stepped in and created the National Flood Insurance Program. And the way that it was originally designed is it's supposed to be kind of like a trade-off. So the federal government will provide flood insurance, right? It will underwrite that risk. But on the other hand, the program wants to see individuals and communities stepping up to reduce their risk. They want to see the overall flood risk of the country go down over time. It's basically a way to regulate communities and how they build themselves up. Exactly. And so in order for your community to have access to federally backed flood insurance, your community has to follow some rules. There's like certain baseline minimum standards that your community has to follow with regards to floodplain management and floodplain development. Otherwise, no one in your community can buy flood insurance. So that's a pretty good incentive. My understanding is that even in places that expect flooding, flood insurance coverage is actually shockingly low. Like last year when Hurricane Ian hit Florida, only 18% of evacuated homes were insured. How does that happen? Isn't the government supposed to be requiring this? So the way that the program is intended to work is that if you live 
in the 1% chance annual floodplain, if you live in the 100-year floodplain, as they say, you are supposed to have flood insurance if you have a federally backed mortgage on your home. So basically everybody with a mortgage is supposed to have flood insurance. However, in real life, really the only time that that gets checked or enforced is when you buy your home and you take out your mortgage in the first place. There's really not a lot of enforcement after that. Mortgages get bought and sold. They're going to like multiple different banks. There's just not a lot of checking that goes on to see if this, we call it the mandatory purchase requirement, is actually sort of holding true over time. And so what happens is a lot of people will just drop their flood insurance. It's expensive. If you have other bills to pay, you know, you're going to make a choice and that choice might not be flood insurance. If you don't have flood insurance and you end up being the victim of a flash flood, like what we saw in Vermont, is the federal government going to help you out? Like, what does rebuilding look like for you? That's a really tough position to be in, unfortunately. If there's a federal disaster declaration that does trigger some assistance funding that comes to people and communities who are affected by these disasters. However, the assistance that you get from those federal aid programs is probably going to be way, way less than what you would have gotten with a flood insurance payout. And it's probably not nearly enough money to actually pay for the repairs um, and the, the other costs that you have after a disaster. Okay, so we've been talking about how things work now. I'm wondering if you can talk about how you think things should work. Like, how, <laughs> how are we going to unwind what we've been doing wrong for a while now? That's a great question. <laughs> um, that's why I have a job. <laughs> um, so let's just take the National Flood Insurance Program, for example. There's a few different things that we're working on to, to try and make happen. One of them is to update those codes and standards so that they reflect the reality that we live in and the information that we've learned over the past several decades about how flooding works and how it affects people. So if you're in the one in 100 flood zone, like there are some more things you need to do to your house to get it ready to go. Right, or if you're a, a town or a city there are requirements that you're going to have to put in your building codes or in your zoning regulations to make sure that we're not putting more people in harm's way. Another component is increasing investments in activities that physically reduce our risk. So more money and more assistance for things like planning at the local level, for projects like ones that help people relocate if they're tired of living in a chronically flooded area, for investments in improved stormwater systems, in investments in green infrastructure. There's a lot of things that we can do that reduce our risk of flooding, and they're really effective. They just cost a lot of money, and a lot of local communities don't have the financial resources or the sort of knowledge and technical expertise and just like staff capacity and time to do these projects. And so we need to increase the amount of assistance funding that's going to, especially the these communities that have 
been disinvested in and disadvantaged for a really long time. Those are often the ones that are seeing the highest flood risk. Are we going to be able to move away from flood risk? Like, is this going to be something we can migrate away from? In the big picture, no. Because everywhere is at risk, at least to some extent. And if you're not at risk of flooding, you're at risk of something else. There's no place that is going to be untouched by the effects of climate change. We can't just all wake up one day and move to Duluth, right, and assume that we're going to be safe. That's just not the way that this works. What do we do with these places that we know are prone to flooding, but we love, we enjoy? How do you imagine us living in those places when we can't physically like live on them? That is such an important question. And in some ways, it's like the question. And communities need to have the agency to determine the answer to that question for themselves. In some cases, it's about reusing the land in a way that provides a different kind of benefit to the community. Maybe it doesn't make sense to have a neighborhood in this particular place next to the river, but you could have a park, you could have a nature center, you could have a playground, you could have something that it doesn't matter so much that it gets affected by high waters when there's a rainstorm. In some places where neighborhoods or or individual homes have been moved in response to flooding, people have put in memorials commemorating the neighborhood's history that used to be there. There's a lot of things that we can be doing, but I think you're right that this is a question that we just, we need to be thinking about and not just keep putting off into the future. Anna Weber, I'm so grateful for your time. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you so much. Anna Weber is a senior policy analyst focused on the current and future effects of flooding at the NRDC. And that's the show. What Next is produced by Anna Phillips, Paige Osborne, Elena Schwartz, Madeline Ducharme, and Rob Gunther. We are led by Alicia Montgomery with a little boost from Susan Matthews. And I'm Mary Harris. Thanks for listening. I'll catch you back here tomorrow.